0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a pillar Bible study podcast. This is episode three of our Advent mini season in which we are going to learn all about two prophets from the early life of Jesus Christ, Anna and Simeon. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and we are joined by our Sunday School teacher and prophetic scriptural scholar extraordinaire. He's getting ready for Christmas. He's making his list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out, everybody. So be nice. Dr. Scott Powell. Scott, how Hello. you doing? How are you? I'm great. I'm merry. You're merry. or you're, you're merry. I'm getting there. We're getting closer to Christmas. Yeah, it's not. We're Christmas allowed to yet. be
1: a little more merry the further. Yeah, we weeks work still, towards. Right? I
0: think this is if I if I'm doing the math in my head correctly, and I don't know. Is this merry Sunday, but I think that we are publishing this episode of the podcast on Gaudete Sunday or thereabouts. Not Latari. Letari Sunday is in Lent, but I both always mean mix those up to be to rejoice. To be pink. Yes. Oh,
1: to rejoice. <laughs> to be to be merry, we shall say.
0: <laughs> so um Scott, what we are gonna talk about in this week's episode of Sunday School Every
1: priest is yelling into their phone it's Rose. Oh for gosh. I <sighs>
0: Don't, we don't, don't have to go down that road don't take, just... me down. don't take me down that country road, Dr. Powell I will not Okay, what we are going to talk about in this episode Is a kind of wrap-up to our Advent mini-season yeah. of Sunday School right. uh, I know you guys have been enjoying this a lot And you can't believe it's time to wrap it up already But it's time to wrap it up <laughs> um, we, In our first episode of this mini-season We talked about a priestly couple mm. Elizabeth and Zechariah In the second episode, we talked about a royal couple, Mary and Joseph. In this episode, we're not going to talk about a couple at all. We are going to talk about a pair, but not a couple in the sense of having contracted marriage or being romantically involved with one another or anything like that. Not that we know of. Not that we know of. A prophetic pair in the temple, Anna and Simeon, who have a lot to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ and about what it is to be prophetic uh, in the first place. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say.
0: And so in this episode, we're going to focus our attention on Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, and um, as is always the case in Sunday school, we have asked Pillar co-founder and editor, our colleague Ed Condon, to read for us the scripture verses upon which we will meditate. So if you have already read Luke 2, 22 through 40, you can skip ahead to to the 430 mark in this podcast. But if you haven't read it, or if you just like listening to Dr. Condon read the scripture to you, here's Ed Condon with Luke 2, 22 through 40.
2: And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul too, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him.
1: Kind of has a, a a pretty tight kind of condensed version of the birth story of Jesus. Again, for the cultural resonance that the story actually has, there's not that much ink given to it in the Bible, um, especially to the birth itself. So we talked a little bit about the circumstances around Jesus' birth last week. One thing I actually was a little remiss uh, not to mention is that the place where Jesus is born, we talked about it being the the ancestral home of Joseph. It is the place where King David was from. Uh, There are prophecies about it in the book of Micah that talk about how the Messiah will eventually come from there. Bethlehem, lowliest of the tribes, right? But the meaning of the of the name of the the place is actually significant. So in, in Hebrew, bet and lechem. So bet always means the house of. So you see places like Bethel. Uh, there's uh-huh. a number of those places which means the house of God. Yeah. But do you do you know what Beth lechem actually literally means?
0: The house of bread. Yeah, it's it's bread
1: house. Bread house. Which is um, very very beautiful. This idea that. The bread of life is going to be born in the house of bread. So he is, even in his birth, bringing together, as these figures that we've been looking at are kind of bringing together all of these aspects of the identity of the Messiah, right? As priest, prophet, as and king, as royal, as new David, as a new Moses, as the shepherd, God's shepherd, the beloved shepherd. Um, But also as the bread of life. So all these things are kind of coalescing. But one of the things I mentioned in there was the priesthood. So we know that Jesus is directly from the royal family, right? He's adopted into the Mm -hmm. family by Joseph. There is reason to believe. So Mary... Um, lest we get caught up in in bloodlines and stuff, uh, being adopted um, into a family give you all the rights and privileges of that family actually i 've been told that i can 't verify this, but I was told once by a teacher that in um, and I, I adoption is very important in both of our lives
0: you have adopted children, do you not scot- i do i do indeed I, I also do have well. adopted children.
1: I'm told that in the ancient Roman world, one of the things that came along with adoption, I think this is very beautiful because Paul, if you remember, St. Paul uses adoption language a lot to talk about our relationship and the family of God. But I'm told that one of the things that happened in the process of Roman adoption was that oftentimes Romans would would adopt an older person. So sometimes, this is very common in royal families because as a king, you might have a kid who you don't really like and you don't really want them to be your heir. So they would frequently just adopt somebody who they like better to be their heir or to be the, Whoa. the royal descendant. The Romans were big on that.
0: That's terrible.
1: It's not great. but But what it means is that Again, to be adopted into a family is Let's to be full Let's just say, one second.
0: Could you imagine if the last act of Queen Elizabeth II was to I, adopt someone slightly older than Charles? I kind of can.
1: Yeah. Okay. But we won't get into that. Um, but again, I'm told that when this process happened, uh, a Roman magistrate would first issue a death certificate. So for the person who was to be adopted, they would literally, their old family name would be put to death. They would die to their former selves. And then they would immediately be granted a new birth certificate to be essentially born again into this new family reality. So the fact that Paul uses this terminology and this image frequently to talk about our relationship in the family of God is pretty, pretty mind blowing.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: So again, to take that for what you will, but um, Jesus is now going to become the adopted son of the heir to the throne, David or uh, Joseph rather. There's also reason to believe. So Luke actually gives his own little genealogy of Jesus's bloodline and tradition says he traces it through Mary. And if you read the genealogy of Matthew, which goes through Joseph's line and the genealogy of Luke, which seems to go through Mary's line, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there's actually a common ancestor if you. Generations back, which would actually make Jesus both priestly because he's part of Mary and Elizabeth's family, but also royal if Mary shares a common ancestor with with uh, Joseph. Uh So Jesus, God likes to to tie up all the loose ends, right? Yes, he is all of these things, and so he now is born in the house of bread, in the house of David. And 40 days later, so we circumcised on the eighth day, which is traditionally when that would happen. But then 40 days later, there's two things that have to happen. One... Uh, Luke mentions the purification, which is a rite that the woman would have to go through after giving birth, right? But the other thing that comes along is the presentation in the temple. So, one of the the mysteries, uh, the joyful mysteries of the rosary, right? So, what's the, and again, we've all heard this a million times, but I don't know if a lot of us know what that rite actually is. It's really significant. So, if you remember in our salvation history, right, at the beginning of the story of the people of Israel, who were the priestly class of Israel way back in Genesis, in the beginning of Exodus?
0: Do you remember? The Levites? No.
1: They are a later... They're plan B. Who was plan A for the priests? The Aaronites? Class? No, that all, all that kind of comes later. So originally... Melchizedek? Nope. He comes... Well, he's... He actually... Not just him. Give me that one, Powell. I'll give it to you. And he's actually... Hebrews talks okay, about... Okay, tell that us. He's who are the pri-
0: priestly class... Species
1: the firstborn sons. Oh, the firstborn all the firstborn sons were supposed all to be. All the, the firstborn sons. Oh, okay. And by virtue fathers who were also firstborn sons could pass down a priestly identity to their sons, which meant kind to of To their a, firstborn sons. To their firstborn sons, yeah, sorry. Which meant kind of a I don't know, almost kind of a democratization of the priesthood throughout the whole nation of Israel, which was what made her a priestly people, that there was a real spiritual authority in every family. Uh And where Aaron comes into the story is during the sin of the golden calves. Remember when God frees Israel from slavery in Egypt during the Exodus, leads them across the Red Sea, takes them to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from the Lord. And the people see you know, the flames and the lightning and the smoke, and they think Moses is dead. He's toast, which means that the God who Moses proclaimed to us was either a sham or out to get us, and we should be afraid of him. And so as a result, they turn back to worshiping one of the gods of Egypt, the god yeah. Apis, who is represented by a calf. And so Moses comes down Mount Sinai after receiving the word of the Lord, sees what Israel is doing, which is not only worshiping a calf, which calves are fine but there was a, a very uh, decadent liturgy shall we say that went along with that the worship cult of apis that was very sexual and, and drunkenness and all sorts of things were going on and he comes down and he says this is this is unacceptable aaron the high priest who was firstborn son he was moses older brother he was kind of the the high priest par excellence by being the firstborn son of Moses' family moses brother he's the one who led the israelites into this apostasy right he built the golden calf And Moses says at that moment that the firstborn sons are now going to be stripped of their priestly identity. And he says, who's going to stand against this atrocity and this apostasy? Who's going to be with God? And it's only one tribe, the Levites, who it's totally unclear to me whether they were just kind of standing along the side griping about this or whether they were participating and stopped. I don't really know. Anyway, the Levites stand up and they say, no, we'll stand against this. And they, they rise up and they slaughter all the people who are partaking in this. And because of that act, they then gain the priesthood of Israel. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, they become the priestly class. The firstborn sons lose it. So what does this have to do with the presentation? The presentation is this kind of heartbreaking ceremony that would happen for every family who had a firstborn son. And every firstborn son had to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem and presented to the priests along with a tithe or a tribute to basically say, thank you for doing the job that my son was supposed to do. Here is our family tribute for um, having lost the identity that my son was supposed to have. And now you please go do this on our behalf. That's what the presentation is. So it's a, it's a very, it's kind of a heart wrenching on a salvation history level. um, Yeah. Practice, which demonstrates in a really beautiful way. Number one, the faithfulness and the obedience of the Holy family to the system that God had established. Even if it was a temporary kind of plan B system, they're faithful to it. They come, it says, uh, in Luke, that they uh, bring an offering. It's in verse 24. They bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That is the offering prescribed, I believe it's in Leviticus, for families who are impoverished. This is one of the reasons we know that the Holy Family was poor, Hmm. that they bring the offering of the poor. So they bring this up to the temple. And what's unclear to me, I was afraid you were going to ask me this, and I don't know the answer. I don't know if they're actually coming from Bethlehem, or if they're coming from Egypt where they fled because oh. of the uh, slaughter of the innocents. It's, it's time-wise, it's unclear to me. I thought this happened when a baby was eight days old. Forty days. Oh, okay. He's circumcised on the eighth day, but the presentation happens 40 days later. So they're about a month and a half in. So again, I, I'm not totally clear on the time frame, but I, I get the impression that probably they've been in Bethlehem for a while. Maybe they've gone back to Nazareth by this point. It's not, it's not totally clear. But regardless, the reason I bring that up is that they're coming from a long journey, right? They're trudging into Jerusalem for the necessary sacrifice to bring their offering to do the job that most firstborn sons could not do, but Jesus is going to take upon himself. But what's remarkable, so do you remember weeks ago when we talked about Zechariah? who yeah. was the guy who had every possible resource for understanding what God wanted to show him. He was a priest. He was schooled. He was trained. He was right outside of the Holy of Holies. He was offering incense. He was offering the prayer on, the ha- on behalf of the people of Israel. And an angel appears to him and says, now is the moment that I'm going to bring to fulfillment everything that I promised. And Zechariah's response is, eh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it kind right. of a thing. right? Simeon, This priest who we're told in verse 25, it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous. He was devout. He was looking for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. So he was looking for the the, the reference to the consolation of Israel is actually a reference back to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I don't know if we talked about Isaiah at all. Isaiah is so steeped in prophecies about the Messiah and who he will be that some of the fathers of the church actually called Isaiah the fifth gospel because it's so it's chock full of stuff. But you can divide the book of Isaiah in, in half. So there's chapters one through 39 are the bad news. Uh-huh. Israel has sinned. They broke the covenants. They broke the commandments. There's going to be punishment. And then halfway through in chapter 40 begins what's called... So the first is the book of woe, because things are real bad. And then in chapter 40 through 66, you have the book of consolation or the book of comfort. Because it begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people. And say to her, her warfare is ended. Say to her that I'm going to make things right now. So in other words, when it says this, kind of packed into it in a biblical and a cultural way, Simeon is waiting for the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah. He's waiting for the comfort and the consolation of... And, and if you remember from Isaiah chapter 40, it's, he's waiting for the voice to be crying out in the wilderness, proclaiming that the moment is coming. And so he's waiting for the consolation. And what does he see? He sees an impoverished family, probably dirty, dusty, tired, sweaty, coming in from the wilderness with their little baby in tow, mm-hmm. with their impoverished offering. And he, with none of the benefits that Zechariah had, instantly says, that's it. Now I see he has the eyes to see precisely what Zechariah could not see. Yeah. In the midst of all the gifts that Zechariah had. And again, I, I resonate with Zechariah more, More, so I, I I say that in all sympathy to, towards Zechariah. And in a lot of ways, you know, I, I've reflected on this in my life, I think I am very much a Zechariah who really wants to be a Simeon. Hmm. I want to be able to be the kind of person who sees God working in the world, sometimes in hidden ways, yeah. and be able to recognize that. It's yeah, a really beautiful all? story. Yeah, hopefully we all do, right? Uh, So we read on. We're in verse 26. And it had been revealed to him, that is Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And remember, the Lord's Christ. Christ means what? Have we talked about this? I don't remember. It means king. So in other words, he's waiting to see the Davidic king come back. It's a very specific reference, right? And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he came to the temple. Uh, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus for him to do according to the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and he blessed God. And he said, actually, Simeon is is kind of beautiful. He gives two oracles. He gives one oracle about the child himself, about Jesus. And then he's going to give a second oracle about Mary. And so the first oracle kind of goes like this. He held the child and he says, Lord, now you, this is the nuke a minute, right? Now you can let your servant go in peace, depart in peace according to thy word. Why? Because mine eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory. Remember the glory. This is a big deal. The glory of the people of Israel. From the time that they rebuilt the second temple, from the time after the exile that they rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel, Everyone had been waiting for the Shekinah to come back, and no one ever saw it. Ezekiel makes very clear that someday, remember the, we talked about the field of dreams theology. Yeah. The, uh, if you build it, He will come. Was, yeah. was the idea, and they've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now, in the arms of this old man, he says, "Yeah, this is it. Now it's finally come." So the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord. You know, sometimes people think it never really returned to the temple. It absolutely returned to the temple. Yeah, it was just a baby that was not noticed by most people. So he says, my eyes have seen God's salvation. He talks about the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. There's three parts to that oracle, all of which is referring back to these Old Testament prophecies that everyone is like, is this ever going to happen? Yeah. Are we ever going to see the fruit of this? It also, it also reminds us of the glory that surrounded the shepherds, right? The same glory that has surrounded the shepherds now finally after hundreds of years has returned to the temple, It was really, really beautiful. And then he gives a second oracle, which is directed to Mary. So verse 33, it says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, which again, reminds us of the Magnificat, rising and falling, right? He's going to be a sign of contradiction. Again, not just that people are going to say things that contradict him, but Luke actually uses this term to describe the plot to kill Jesus. Yeah. Um, he talks about how the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed um, which points ahead toward when the Pharisees and the religious leaders show their true colors over Jesus and then finally he says a sword is going to pierce your heart Mary which I don't know if you remember this John Paul II actually called this the second annunciation yeah that's right kind of good news bad news kind of a thing Um, which is really really beautiful so Mary is kind of being again we're being set up in all these really beautiful ways for where the gospel is going And then it says in verse 36, then there was also a prophetess, Anna of the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years until her virginity. And as a widow until she was 84, she didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, how convenient she gave thanks to God. And she spoke of him to all who were looking for what? The redemption of Israel, which is... Hopefully, everybody. Now, not everybody as we see in the rest of the Gospels, knew exactly what they should have been looking for. We know almost nothing about Anna. We know she's old. We know that she's been led by the Spirit to go and be in this place. We know that she happens to be in the right time, right place, right, to see the Messiah. She speaks to everybody about what she's seen. But it's almost as if, in the, the sparseness of the details about who she is, it's almost as if Luke just needs desperately to round out this story in the perfectly poetic way to show this sets these three sets of men and women who come. Come to reveal the, the consolation given to Israel, finally that has finally come, which is cool so that 's our couples now, in our our, our remaining little time there 's two last things I want to uh, talk about. I'm going to talk about something that Matthew tells us, and then I'm going to close with something that Luke does. Okay. So I want to say a word. It's not in the Gospel of Luke. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. I want to say a word about the Magi. Okay. The uh, wise men uh, who are not one of the things we, we don't know a whole lot about the wise men. One of the things that we do know, I think pretty definitively, or we can, we can guess pretty definitively is that they are not Kings, right? We three Kings of Orient are, um, the, the term is Magi, which is where we get the word magician from. Right. Um, and there's a lot we probably could say about this. They're fairly mysterious figures. They come from the East, which I guess depending on where you are in the world, you know, directional things can mean a lot of different things. You're from New Jersey, um, which i I'm not. But I remember when we we were both at not at the same time but we were at a school in Ohio and I remember being really frustrated as a coloradan that people seemed to be very directionally
0: challenged when I was there and they had very weird I so if, if because you're, we did, always know we always know here in Colorado which way it's west because we – and then in all the other directions because we know where the mountains are. Well, I was
1: more going to say like if you're in New Jersey and you say that somebody's from out west, I mean you could mean Pittsburgh for Pete's sake, right? It can, I suppose. It, it's, it's subjective how far we're actually talking. Or even western New Jersey. Or even western New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. But so for the, the Jewish people, the east is anywhere across the Jordan right? That's, that's where the east is. It's kind of the out there region. Mm-hmm. So where do these guys come from? Well, the term magis or, or magi, which again refers to magician, it's a, it's a term that is often associated with Arabia. Here, here's, here's why I think this is important. Again, without dwelling too much on the magi, there's two things that are important about them. Number one, they come looking for something almost inexplicably, right? So where they're from actually matters. And based on kind of things that we can sort of deduce about their titles and who they are and what they bring with them. They probably either come from a region around Arabia or maybe Babylon, partially because uh, gold comes from this region. Frankincense is only actually, uh, you can only get in the Arabian region around Babylon. Um, and myrrh actually comes from this region as well. So we can we can do some things geographically based on what they bring. And I wonder, and the term itself is used sometimes for the region around Babylon. You mean Iraq?
0: Present-day Iraq. I just want to put people where they are. Yeah,
1: present-day Iraq. Mm -hmm. But the reason I actually say Babylon, if you remember, do you remember our first episode? I talked a lot about the book of Daniel. And the Babylonian exile. And And the Babylonian exile. What, What was interesting about the Babylonian exile... Is that once the Babylonian exile ended, and a guy named Cyrus, who was a Persian, who had defeated the Babylonians, he allows the Israelites to go back home and basically rebuild Jerusalem. Yeah. And what we know about the story is it's it's not quite an Egypt exodus sort of a story, right? It's not that everybody just kind of grabbed everything and, and hightailed it out of there and crossed the sea or something. Um, most Jews probably stayed in Babylon, because number one, Cyrus was actually pretty friendly to them and let them practice their religion. And for a second point, there was no Jerusalem to go back to. It had been sacked and burned and destroyed. There was no infrastructure. So some people go back, but a whole lot of people stay. And actually, up until the 1940s, The second largest population of Jews in the world was actually in Baghdad, Mm -hmm. which is remarkable. So it it tells you that for a long, long time, there was still there maintained a Jewish population there. Yeah. And others scattered around the Mediterranean world, which is why St. Paul can visit all these different synagogues around the Mediterranean. These people had sort of scattered in the diaspora. But there's a huge population that remained in Babylon, which means that the scriptures remained in Babylon, which means that the prophecies of guys like Daniel might have been fairly well-known because mm. he was a prophet living, working in the Babylonian empire and right. kingdom that might have been known. And if these are men who are men of learning and want to seek wisdom, um, astronomer, they're, they're, they're probably somewhere between the realm of what we think of as astronomers or astrologers. And I don't mean astrologer in kind of the, the weird new agey way, but they're, they're, they're reading the signs of creation they're reading the stars but they're also trying to deduce meaning from it right again it's, it's unclear to the degree that you know sorcerers and manipulation of stuff I, I don't know I'm not sure but these are guys who are obviously curious curious about the world and I wonder if they were curious enough to have read the Old Testament or read the Hebrew scriptures uh-huh. because it's part of the culture and if you read it carefully enough in Daniel you would have known really about the time
0: right we the talked Messiah about was that, supposed to show up that everyone knew it was about the time right so there were a lot of of false messiahs and all of that exactly right Right. which puts them on the road at the right time but the other thing that they
1: may or may not have been aware of is a passage from the book of numbers everybody's favorite book right Um, people don't spend a whole lot of time in the book of numbers but there's one story in the book of numbers that I just want to highlight for a second and it's the story about a guy named Balaam do you remember Balaam yeah from numbers (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah he has a donkey that speaks to him yep. so the story goes like this there was a guy named balak so this is the period of time when israel has been they, they've been released from egypt right they've crossed the red sea And they've had the golden calf thing that we talked about. They've had their downfall. And now they're wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years, waiting for the the sinful generation to die off so that they can go and take the promised land in a new generation. And while they're kind of wandering in circles for 40 years, there is a king of a place called Moab, which is just on the east of the Jordan River, named Balak. And Balak does not like the Israelites wandering around. I mean, they're not just wandering. There's a massive nation that's kind of wandering around his borders, which does seem like a threat. Potentially. And so what Balak does is hire a guy named Balaam, who's a sorcerer, a magi. To, he was basically a sorcerer for hire. And he hires him to go to the people of Israel and pronounce a curse on them. Because they, they understand that there's spiritual implications of stuff. Uh-huh. And as the story goes, Balaam, who's a sorcerer for hire, goes out to pronounce this curse on Israel and keeps – every time he opens his mouth, a blessing comes out, right? Mm, that's right. That's and right. and he has right. a donkey who talks to him and, and shows him what's up yeah. for a while too. But in one of the times that he tries to pronounce this curse over Israel and it comes out in words of blessing, he says this. And it's in Numbers chapter 24. It's in verse uh, sixteen. Um, the oracle of him who hears the words of God. Now remember, he's trying to curse them, and instead, uh, out of his mouth comes this: the oracle of him who hears the words of God. Remember, an oracle, a sorcerer, is supposed to be someone who can see and hear and experience things that other people can't. Yeah, he has spiritual insights that that you know you don't have, so that's why you get a sorcerer. But this oracle hears the words of God. And knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, but having his eyes uncovered. And he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise up out of Israel. And it will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all of the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, and all of his enemies will be dispossessed. So there's a prophecy way back in the book of Numbers about a sorcerer who is a magi, who is hired by an evil king to try to destroy Israel. And in his trying to destroy Israel, he pronounces this prophecy about a star, a Messiah who's coming, but not yet, a star that is going to come forth as a sign of his birth, a scepter that he's going to be given, and Edom, which is an enemy kingdom of Israel, who's going to be dispossessed. So how does that play out in the story of Jesus? What does Herod do? Remember, the magi come right. because they see a star. Maybe they're familiar with this. Maybe yeah. they're not. But they see a star rising. Yeah. They maybe are familiar with the prophecies of Daniel. Something has aroused their curiosity. And so if you expect a king to be arising in a scepter that's going to be given to this guy, you go to Jerusalem because it's the capital city. It's where the king is. Yeah. And they get an audience with Herod, the king. And they say, we would like to know where the king is. And he says, what are you talking about? Right. He's a little confused. And so, what does he do? He tries to use the magi to destroy the true king of Israel, just like Balak did. And instead of destroying, they're actually going to pronounce blessing upon him and give him these gifts. But this this prophecy is what sets us up for that story. The other kind of piece of it. So the the star is significant, the scepter of the kingship, and then the Edom piece. I don't know if I said this on our, our first episode. Herod was not Jewish, which is one of the things that people couldn't stand. It was the rubbing salt in the wound. Do you remember what he was? Edomite? He was an Edomite. Which is the tendency of this, and he's going to be dispossessed. So all of these pieces, I think, really kind of beautifully match up. Yeah. And if you take the story of the Magi, which, again, only Matthew gives you, and you kind of put it in tandem with the story of the shepherds that we talked about last week, you get this sign of Jesus being the king for both the lowly, for the faithful, and for the outsiders. Yeah. Right? We have the lowly, we have the faithful of the holy family, and we have these Gentiles, which, again, is setting the agenda for the rest of the book, which I think is cool last thing i want to say in the gospel of luke I, sometimes i i debate about this because sometimes it feels like a bit of a stretch but i want to throw some math at you that i find really really compelling Okay. So if you take the whole birth narrative, right, the infancy narratives that we've been talking about as one long timeline, right, you can kind of begin the timeline where we begin this podcast with Zechariah in the temple.
0: Incensing the temple. It's a Incensing very big day for temple. him. Very big day. Gabriel comes. He says, Your God, the glory of the Lord is going to be yeah. revealed, fulfilled, yeah. return to Israel, yeah. and Everything you're going to have a baby. going to be awesome. Zechariah says, I don't understand this at all. And, right. and we're off to the races. And we're off to the races.
1: The next kind of timestamp Luke gives you is in chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, in the sixth month... And you might say, well, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. What is it the sixth month of? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Yeah, it's not just the sixth month of the year, but I think we're six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's when
0: Mary goes to visit Elizabeth.
1: No, that's when Mary has her annunciation. Oh, Mary Again has her annunciation. Yeah. So
0: Elizabeth is pregnant for yeah, six months, and then Mary has the annunciation.
1: Now, here's the cool thing. For the most part, Jewish months consist of 30 days. 30 all days has even, September, right? Nisan, May, and December. <laughs> Very good. Way to pull Nissan out there. So if that's every a month, month in the Jewish calendar, it's a month. It's the the only month that a lot of people know because it's when Passover. Is. It's the only month I know. Um. So if it's six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, and every month has about thirty days, six
0: times 30, 180. We're about one hundred and eighty days into the narrative, right? uh-huh. the story so far. And so when, from the time when Zechariah was in the temple. The time when Elizabeth is six months pregnant.
1: Yeah, or the time that, that John the Baptist is conceived, whenever exactly that is. Yeah, okay. So so we're months. six months in. So we're 180 days into the story. Yeah. In other words, and the Mary is told by Gabriel that she's going to have a baby. She's going to be pregnant, and pregnancy again lasts nine like months. Nine months in usually. My and so, if you take nine times thirty. That's actually 270. 270. Okay. So 270 days is how long her pregnancy will last. But we start already six months into the story. So if you do 180 plus 270, it puts you in the narrative at day
0: 450. Oh, so from the time Luke starts to the time Jesus is born... Roughly exactly. 450 days. So
1: by the time that the Messiah finally, long-awaited, enters the world, it's day 450. Okay, which is awesome, right? Why? No, it's not because that doesn't make any sense. But that's not where Luke ends the story. Remember, for Luke to get us to the point in the narrative when he says through the words of Simeon, "Now is the moment that all of these things have come to Simeon fruition." Simeon says this. Now Simeon is the says, moment. Now I've seen the now I have seen the now, now the I've seen the redemptions. Word. Anna says it too. That's right. They the, both do. The presentation is for. Forty days after a birth, so if you take day four fifty and you add forty days, it actually puts the consolation of Israel coming to pass at day four hundred ninety of the narrative.
0: Wow! Well, that's which is cool. So I mean, it might remarkable seem like because we're taking some- a, that's remarkable because Daniel. If you read the Book of Daniel from the time of Daniel until the coming of the Messiah. Right. Daniel found out was going to be 490 years. Right. And now we're saying that from the time of the beginning of this narrative until the the glory of Israel being revealed is 490 days. There's a parallel there. Which you could say you're kind of doing some backflips through hoops to get to, but I...
1: M- Luke, but is, it could, very
0: well could be embedded in the text. Luke's I
1: think smart Luke knows guy. exactly what he's doing. And so whether you think the number is kind of more symbolic or not, Luke wants to subtly point out to you, yeah, this is what Daniel was talking about.
0: And so what does Luke want to tell us with that? Why no. is that not just cool but deeply <laughs> spiritually cool. meaningful?
1: This is – again, this is where we started the podcast, right? The significance of Luke – is that um, alone among all of the writers of the New Testament, he is a non-Jew. He's a Gentile. And so the non-Jew is pointing out the fulfillment of all of the hopes and desires of the Jewish people from the beginning of their exile on. And what he wants us to know is through the Magi and through the shepherds and through the Holy Family and all of these other witnesses, himself included, that this isn't merely the fulfillment of a long story of a people called Israel. This is the fulfillment of the whole, this is the concept consolation, this is the redemption, the salvation of the whole of the earth. And Luke embodies that message in his person as the only non-Jew, the outsider, who writes a gospel. It's him and him alone that actually tells you this
0: story, which I I, I think is really beautiful and poetic. Absolutely. As we get close now to Christmas, Scott, how will you take that to prayer?
1: My prayer for a while has really has... Ben to be more like Simeon. Simeon is, I think one of the least known figures in the Bible. Um, but he's begun to hold one of the greatest places, uh, in my prayer life in that, uh, In a certain sense, we don't have to know much about him because a prophet, remember, we sometimes misunderstand what prophecy is in the Bible, and we think that prophecy is is merely future telling, which sometimes he can tell. He says what's going to happen to Mary, and he reveals something to her, but a prophet is not just someone who tells the future. A prophet is someone who reveals what God is doing in the world, and what Simeon does is under veiled circumstances, in unlikely of places, and in unlikely of people, at least to the eyes of the world, Simeon is helping to reveal to everyone around him what God is actually doing. I don't know if anybody listened to Simeon. Maybe he was just the crazy old man that hung out in the steps of the temple. Or if anyone listened to Anna, who was the crazy old woman who was, you know, always ranting about something. But their job is, again, maybe they were the least likely people you'd expect, which is the magnificat of Mary, in a certain sense, coming to pass but they are doing the job of prophets and that yeah they're telling the future in some sense but they're revealing where god is in the world and they're pointing fingers toward this is where he is pay attention which luke again even as in his person as a gentile is saying this is where god is at work pay attention so i want to be more like simeon
0: thanks be to god amen Well, you have certainly shown us more concretely where God is in Scripture as we prepare for Christmas. He's in chapter 2. Thank you for showing us the presence of Christ um, in this Advent season and um, in the men and women who God used to reveal, um, not only to reveal, but to bring to fruition his long awaited promise for the whole of the world. Scott, you will certainly be in my prayer as we get closer to Christmas, and listeners, you will certainly be in our prayers as well. Indeed. We hope that this Advent mini-season has been spiritually fruitful for you, and we hope that you will be ready uh, after, um, probably during the season of Christmas, but after C- Christmas Day itself, sometime in the new year, for um, our full season two of Sunday, or the Sunday School podcast on um, the Book of Psalms. Oh my. Oh my. Oh my. Oh my. <laughs> Scott, it's a little early, it's a little premature, but um, Christ Don't has come it. into the world. and He has. He has, truly, though. <laughs> well, he has. Christ has come into the world, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, and blessed Adam. And Merry Christmas to you, dear listeners. Sunday School is production of Pillar Media, and Ed and JD production. I'm your host, JD Flynn. We are joined by our Sunday School teacher and Advent Tide greeter, himself, Dr. Scott Powell, uh, a little... A little elf of Christmas for us all. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be praying for all of you in the conclusion of Advent and in the Christmas season.